Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the December 2022 or 2023 Muni Outlook edition of Masters of the Universe. I'm Eric Kazatsky, head of municipal strategy at Bloomberg Intelligence and joined by today by Karen Altamirano, also of Bloomberg Intelligence. Our guests today are three local men who have differing takes on the municipal landscape for 2023 and in some cases hope that their calls for the year ahead are not dashed by unforeseen forces once again. In no particular order, we are joined by Peter DeGroote, head of municipal research and strategy at JP Morgan. Vikram Rai, Head of Municipal Strategy at City, and Mikhail Fu, Head of Municipal Research at Barclays. Welcome everyone today. Thank you. So Thank you. listen, 2022, obviously not a great year. And when we got together uh, in 2021 to talk about the year ahead, you know, there was a lot of looking into the crystal balls and forecasting that just didn't pan out. So I want to start off with a question and look, you can answer it however you like, but which of you three feel that you got 2022 the most right in terms of how the year played out for munis? You know, we'll start with Vikram. What do you think? Thank you, Eric, for that very, very embarrassing question, okay? Because <laughs> because I, I think I should go last because I think I got everything wrong. So I probably don't deserve <laughs> to be on this podcast. I have overanalyzed this. So I, I got my supply number wrong. I got my, my demand picture wrong because it was predicated on the rate cycle. Everything is, it's its a single point of failure, right? We, we were all expecting higher rates going into 20, 2022. We're yep. expecting higher inflation. We expected the Fed to hike. I think all of us were in, were in sync there. I think yep. the magnitude of the hike, I was totally taken off guard. And I want to believe that it all started with the war, which actually impacted the supply chain. And that's why inflation just went sky high. And it was not transitory as the Fed thought it was. And I I believe that to be true as well. And see, that that sent everything, put everything in a disarray. So supply, my number was very high. I was at 500. We wound up much lower than that. And it was that, that supply number was predicated on refundings. Refundings completely got crushed because the rate volatility. Demand, as you know, we had a, a, a with the rate volatility, we had a fund outflow cycle. So the demand picture did not play out very well. Credit, uh, I, I want to believe that most of us, but at least uh, I want to believe that, that I didn't get it wrong because we didn't have any credit uh, fears as such. And obviously the rate number was wrong. So, well, to summarize, I got most things wrong and I hope 2023 is a better year. The market appreciates your apology, Vikram. We will continue <laughs> to support you during this year. Peter, it's my recollection after having re-listened to the podcast, I feel like you were the most accurate in terms of the magnitude of inflation impacting the market. What would you say to that? So, um, you know, I, I think we we did okay, right? So in terms of our supply forecast, to me, year in and year out, the easy part is tax-exempt new money. Uh, we expected uh, $255 billion in tax-exempt new money will probably come in exactly, and luckily, right? Uh, because uh, you know you, you never get this right to the dollar at about 255 uh, in new money. Yeah. To Vikram's point, where uh, the forecast got it wrong was clearly on the taxable side and clearly on taxable advanced refunding of tax exempt debt. So we expected about 112 billion 
in taxable advance refunding uh, of tax exempt debt, we're going to end up with uh, well, 100 in in total taxable supply, right? 112. Yeah. We're going to end up with about I don't know 60 or so. So uh, missed that by, yeah. yeah, missed yeah. that by about 50 percent. Uh, also, in the tax exempt space, we missed uh, current refundings. Uh, we expected current refundings were, uh, you know, going to be somewhere in the order of uh, 100 billion or so. We ended, we'll end up getting 75 billion or so, but um, not so far off in terms of uh, the forecast for supply, and in terms of sort of market positioning and market performance. To me, it, it's a, it's a directional call. Right. So uh, even though rates increased more than we had anticipated uh, in our 2022 outlook uh, entitled risk unrewarding. Right. Uh, we recommended uh, short duration, uh, less duration, less credit exposure, overweighting five years and shorter on the curve. Yeah. Uh, we were expecting that uh, particularly one to five years in the yield space would provide best returns. Uh, and they have, right, uh, given roll down characteristics and, uh, you know, to, to call it, uh, you know, accretion to par, if you will, and that's those areas of the curve. So, I, you know, I feel pretty good about uh, our uh, sort of performance layout where we expected the top returns would be in the market, but order of magnitude, we didn't expect the significant the size of the underperformance in yeah. the longer portion of the curve and particularly in the in the uh, longer you know the magnitude of underperformance in the yeah. yield space uh, again longer term but positioning i think we were spot on all right mikhail what do you think yep um so um i'd say we did okay as well in terms of uh, our forecast. Uh, in terms of supply, uh, we were, I think, at 440, if I remember correctly, 430, so definitely at the low end of everybody's four projections. We actually thought that we're not going to have as, as many taxable refundings um, as rates move higher. Uh, of course, as you know, I concur with Victor what we're saying, I mean, we thought that rates will not increase, increase as much, although I did say, I remember specifically saying that we expect high-grade high Will be returns will be close to zero and high yield actually might be in the negative territory. Yeah. I guess I should be like more assertive on that. So I guess negative I meant minus eleven percent. So <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so directional at least like we we got it right. Um, in terms of specific, you know, uh, I remember also like one of the focus that uh, of our previous forecast was that we uh, we said stay away from low coupon debt and of course that was you know that part of the market got completely destroyed in the first sort of like three maybe to five months so so we did well on that so I think you know I don't think too many people anticipated like the rate move that we had. So directionally, everybody was cautious. Everybody was saying that munis were rich, ratios were rich. And funny enough, you know, I know kind of like looking a little bit ahead, that's exactly what we're finding ourselves, you know, this year, sort of like a bit of like a groundhog year. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, we kind of, you know, expected a difficult year. And of course, you know, the difficulty of this year surpassed all kinds of uh, expectations. Uh, on credit defaults and everything else, I think most people were relatively positive and, uh, you know, we remain to be positive and um, I think defaults like close to 1% at roughly what we expected. Yep. So I guess, the, as I said, the, the biggest thing is the magnitude of the sellout that nobody really expected. Yeah. Let's, let's turn our eyes to 2023. So um, keeping with the topic of issuance, um, why don't we go around the room real quick and uh, what do you guys see? What are the three of you see the um, 
supply coming in at in 2023? And we can start with Mikhail on this question. Um, I, you know, interestingly, if I, again, I will comment the low end, everybody's expectations. So we are mid-market for 10. So, um, you know, we think that, uh, you know, some COVID money is sort of running out. So um, some issues might have to come to the market. Um, we also have a couple of infrastructure uh, packages that, that, that were passed. And uh, we might see some utilization of, um, of these funds and sort of like leveraging them um, on the, on the uh, issuance side, so you might see more issues as a result of that, um, unless we see a big rally um, in rates um, in the second half of the year, we think refunding activity again will be subdued, um, and taxable refundings again will not be, um, you know, heavy, so taxable issues, you know, will be on the order of like, you know, 50, 60 billion, roughly what we saw this year. So the big caveat for me is we have, uh, we're underestimating sort of the depth of the recession that is coming. I think most people are projecting and the rally of rates on the back of it. So then we could see more issues in the second half of the year and the right. uh, possibility of a positive surprise. So our projection for gross issuance next year uh, is, is very similar to where we expect to sort of land uh, this year. So we're looking for a gross supply of about 375 billion. Uh, within that forecast is a $330 billion expectation for tax exempts, which would be slightly higher than where we think we're going to come in uh, this year, and uh, $45 billion, so um, you know, similar, a little bit lower uh, than Mikhail's forecast or taxable muni bonds. And, you know, I see sort of the same risks, right? So, uh, you know, uh, in terms of taxable bond market, right, uh, the big sort of delta could come from a larger rally in the taxable bond markets than expected. Uh, that said, for taxable advance for funding to sort of, uh, you know, be game on, to turn that spigot on again, we need about 150 to 200 basis point rally in longer dated, call it, you know, double A space taxable yields before that market uh, was efficient in terms of taking out uh, tax exempt supply in, in refunding. So, long way away uh, right now clearly uh, that would indicate a far deeper uh, recession than we're currently projecting so we think that uh, taxable supply uh, you know again sort of stays in that 50 billion dollar range but uh, tax exempt we're expecting a new money to increase a modestly expectation for increased new money as some of the infrastructure federal uh, federal programs for infrastructure start to leak into the bond market even though a lot of those subsidies were very small and and very specific in terms of the sectors that they uh, effectively would uh, would sort of uh, augment supply in those projects uh, that funding does sort of decrease the all-in cost for those projects. So we expect that to uh, affect new money a, a bit higher. And also you have the inflation, that uh, inflation aspect where projects just cost more in uh, 2023 than they did in, in, in prior years. Yeah. And, uh, and Vikram, where do, you, where do you see supply coming in in 2023? Well, I guess uh, I'm, the, I'm the high watermark again. Uh, I have it at 450. Uh, tax exempt 375, taxable 75, were nice round numbers. I'm not expecting too much in taxable refundings, just 20 billion, but I am expecting about three or 10 billion in tax exempt new money. And it's uh, it's ironical, but uh, the, the same reasons that Peter and Mikhail mentioned, I'm using that those, those same three reasons 
to come up with my uh, my higher issuance number because recession fears. I mean, we have finance officers advising their states to conserve cash piles rather than spend them down. I'm worried about pension underperformance because that will be a strain on general funds for states as they're try trying to continue to catch up with contributions. And like Peter mentioned, inflation-driven cost increases, you know, operating wages fixed, that will impact. So I, I, yeah. that's why I think it, now I think the, the wild card here is, again, uh, you know, policy, the Fed, and I worry about this, for lack of a better term, structural stupidity, which will drive us into a recession. So, so if we, if we have tremendous rate volatility, then the same the same phenomenon will play out this year that we'll have issues on the sidelines because they want to avoid the volatility. And I, I confess that I'm still a little worried about the, the Fed's plans because inflation. I mean, do you think that 25 basis points versus 50 basis points will actually take inflation down to 2%? I don't think so. So I'm worried that the hikes will be far deeper than what the market expects, and we were all wrong last last time. So if that's the case, then all bets are off. Okay. You know, you all touched on taxable munis, and you know, obviously looking at the year-over-year -year numbers, they fell off the face of the earth. So I guess my question would be, look, obviously like a drop in rates could bring back supply there, but I guess the question I have is, you had a lot of foreign investors who got into this space being sold on the fact that there was a steady stream of supply and you know, uncorrelated asset bucket to corporates. So now that you have the tap shut off, do you have those those you know buyers who are throwing up their hands and saying we're no longer interested? Is that a risk going forward with that space, Vikram? What do you think? That that is definitely a risk, Eric. And uh, so this is probably the only thing that I got right in the last uh, uh, in the last outlook call. I was worried that the foreign investor footprint will shrink, and mm -hmm. the, and like you correctly uh, uh, said. So what was our pitch to the foreign investor about the taxable muni base? We said that it has great sharp ratios. Yep. And, liqu and liquidity is pretty good. Yep. Sharp ratios have collapsed because we had tremendous rate volatility, and the yep. same factors that we would that we would pitch to them that it's a it's high grade credit, it's long duration credit that came back to bite them. So that's yep. why taxable muni returns have been horrendous. So that pitch has gone away. Meanwhile, yep. with no supply, the liquidity has gone away too. And yep. see, the foreign investors have huge balance sheets, so they, they they'll come to us with, yeah, we have a fifty million dollar ask, and and that is not something that can be completed overnight. So yes, yep. the illiquidity and the the volatility in tax exempt, and there is there's, there's there is a liquidity which is driving volatility even further. It's yep. a, it's a it's a feedback loop, yep. that is impacting demand for taxables from foreign investors. So we had predicted that ETF the ETF footprint will exceed that of the foreign investor footprint, and that seems to be about to happen. And that will continue this time too. So it's not, you're always worried about who's, win, who's going to be the liquidity provider when, uh, when funds are selling. And yeah. one would think that, yeah, the safety net would be retail, foreign investors, crossovers. No, it has been ETFs, right? So it's not foreign yeah. investors, yeah? I mean, Peter, could the, the pitch to foreign investors really just be the credit quality if we're heading into a recession? You know, because if they're looking at it as a trade-off between corporates, right? I put my money behind the state of California. You know, I like that credit better than, let's say, Apple. Absolutely, that's part of the pitch. So the pitch is really uh, threefold in my view. You know, up to your point, if we're entering into a recession and uh, you know, more idiosyncratic uh, dollar-denominated assets like U.S. corporates should underperform uh, to, to, to a large degree given, uh, you know, higher velocity of uh, rating change, specifically more downgrades, and you know, in a, in a catastrophic event, a, a higher potential for default in uh, again the corporate bond space. One of the other factors that's very important, and we see sort of uh, impacting demand, 
is hedging costs for non-U.S. investors. So uh, non-U.S. investors uh, on on average in 2022 saw their hedging costs go from a tailwind to a headwind. If you look at uh, you know this morning, for example, uh, like a, a double A uh, 10-year investment in taxable munis, even though the spread is 50 basis point plus over U.S. corporates. That investment, when hedged with euros, is actually a negative uh, 60 plus basis points in all end yield. Now, mm -hmm. the confluence of things that could happen next year, which um, we're actually forecasting, that would cause taxable meetings to be significantly attractive to non US investors would be one, the Fed moving from a tightening cycle to an easing cycle, or, or at least the market anticipating that the Fed potentially in early 2024 was moving to an e easing cycle, therefore decreasing significantly the hedge costs and actually turning the head cost, uh, hedge costs for non-US investors into a, a, a positive, into a payment, if you will. Plus, the magnitude of spreads in taxable munis relative to U.S. corporates and relative to European, Asian, um, and and uh, you know other broadly speaking other non-U.S. Uh, governmental securities, and we think that that spread. So let's just looking using sort of uh, a very liquid U.S. credit market as uh, as sort of a a, a spread point, a benchmark point. And the expectation would be an inflow cycle into open-end uni funds in 2023 would drive significant spread compression between taxable munis and corporates, U.S. corporates, and taxable munis and tax exempts. Yeah. So if you put together debit credit uh, sort of fundamentals, again, going into this week economic period, as you pointed out, wider spreads and the potential for uh, a tailwind in terms of hedging costs, I think the value proposition for taxable munis is pretty strong in 2023. Okay. I hope our three foreign investors who are audience for this podcast are <laughs> listening to this pitch right now. <laughs> Mikhail, let's talk about fund flows. So at the end of 2021, there was lots of talk about if rates went up by like 100 basis points, right? That so many trucks would be backed up into the muni market and they would just load up on tax exempts, right? However, we had rates go up way more than that, and fund flows were not reflective of any trucks. There wasn't even a wheelbarrow backing up to put munis into anything. So, I mean, what is your take on that? What happened? When is this going to reverse? I mean, we um, kind of always try to think of our asset class as a separate asset class, but really, at the end of the day, we go as uh, treasuries go. So, uh, you know, when we have like a 300 basis point treasury sell-off, really nothing we can do. And that's why we have the returns that we had, especially if we went in the year, like yeah. we were pretty rich. So I think the question is really like, you know, what's your outlook on, on rates? And I think uh, currently, if you're talking like to me and that uh, telling me like where rates will be, let's say like mid next year, yeah. I mean, I have to say that like rates have to be higher. I think I'm a little concerned that, as I said, like we're starting the year exactly in the same spot as we we're starting last year when we were rich and everybody's low and everybody was say and, uh, and um, uh, rates were low and everybody was saying, you know what, like we might have like, you know, maybe a little bit more and then we're almost there. The same thing as last year we had like, I think expectations were for a 75 basis point. Um, rate hikes for the whole year. 
So if Fed is really close, like, sort of like to the end of the tightening cycle, so then, you know, rates should stabilize, but I still think that they should stabilize at substantially higher rates where we are right now, and maybe then we'll rally in the second half of the year. At least that's our firm's forecast. So going to next year, I think if rates will sell off, let's say, another, say, 100 basis points or close to that, I just don't see outflow stopping. So, uh, you know, but when that happens, I think you probably will see, like, you know, clearly, if you look at tax exempt especially, it's a much better asset class right now, like, to invest for retail, let's say, for example, at current yields, it makes a lot more sense. That's why I think that, like, really longer term, you know, you'll see, you know, inflows and like this, this asset class will be, um, you know, very popular with retail and, and other investors sensitive to tax rates. So, but I think it will happen, you know, in, I would say, Q1, uh, Q, Q2, Q3. I think Q1 will still be difficult, difficult from the fund point of view and from the rates point of view. Yeah. I mean, Peter, was it surprising to you that we had taxable equivalent yields close to like 7, 8% and you still didn't have the interest generated that one would expect? I mean, these are like almost like a generational opportunity for a lot of people to lock in that sleep at night money at those rates, right? Yeah, absolutely. But but I, I do think it's important to talk about like where the demand is coming from. I actually do think that there was uh, maybe not um, you know, a bit of a wheelbarrow, right? Uh, you know, maybe a pickup truck uh, backing up in terms of both SMA inflows uh, as well as ETFs, right? So on a, on a year-to-date basis, we've seen 25, actually 26 billion in ETF inflows. Not so bad, right? Uh, unfortunately, it was 141 billion in outflows in open-end funds. So, you know, that'll leave a mark. Uh, but you also saw this significant amount of capital contract uh, attracted to SMAs, and that's a big deal. It can't be ignored. And that, uh, in that one to 10-year portion of our market, there is, it is extremely rich and there is extreme value in that space, in uh, the one to 10 year space. Yeah. The next shoe to drop, and I hear it coming, is the pickup truck open end uh, muni fund inflows. That happens after US Treasury bonds hit their peak. US Treasury bonds historically hit their peak one month to three months before the terminal rate for the cycle. Our okay. expectation is we hit the terminal rate for the cycle in March of next year, meaning we've either already seen the peak in Treasury yields or it's coming sometime in, in, in the first quarter of next year. That okay. would mean for us the inflow cycle and very difficult to time and, and yeah. definitely, as Mikhail said, uh, definitely beholden to where what your rate view is, uh, significant inflows, back up the truck, yeah. munis in uh, 2023. All right, I just had a calendar reminder for myself. Uh, I'm going to check back in with you when that happens. <laughs> uh, recently, we had um, a shop ask us if we um, will still be talking about the rise of SMAs five years from now. Uh, our answer was resounding yes. In fact, much of the AUM growth in our space has come on that front. Um, we're interested in getting your thoughts on, on that matter. We'll start with Vikram. Yeah, so... Yes, I, I am. I am positive on SMA growth, and whenever we go to meet a, a large client, and I always ask them, that, "Do you have an SMA strategy? Do you have an ETF strategy?" Because it's relevant. Mm -hmm. And what what Peter just mentioned. See, we typically what would happen is that you would see a mutual fund outflow cycle, open and outflow cycle, and the ETF 
NAV, uh, whether it was at a premium or a discount, would indicate what would be, it would be a leading indicator. So if the ETF was trading at a premium, inflows are coming, discount, outflows are coming, and now the exact opposite has happened. SMA is kind of sit somewhere in between. So there's, there's, they don't, they're not leading indicators of anything, but that money is sticky. And for the longest time, we would tell SMA managers that look, the money is sticky, but clients do look at performance numbers. And we had seen SMAs underperformed, you know, the more active, uh, actively yeah. managed open end funds because they have uh, SMAs have much more, a uh, much more conservative duration mandate and credit mandate. But this is the very first time in five years that I feel very positive about SMAs. I mean, I have felt positive about SMAs, but even in terms of, I think this is their opportunity because. So if you want to invest in the one to five year part of the curve or stay inside of the seven year part of the curve, I'm saying go for it. For the very first time, I'm saying that, okay, look, the long end does not offer opportunity. The risk reward metric does not make sense because if you look at the flatness of the curve after the bear flattening, if you extend duration by five years, you don't really pick up that much yield. And in, in the case of treasury, you have an inverted curve. So when the curve re-steepens, uh, assuming that the Fed goes on hold, uh, then I would expect some tailwind even for the Muni curve, even though the Muni curve is not inverted. And so that means the front end will actually do very well. Yeah. So this is the SMA's moment of opportunity, window of opportunity that their duration mandate, their credit mandate is ideal for this environment. Right? So I do expect their assets to grow substantially this year. Yeah. And mutual and uh, open end uh, fund flows, of course, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a pendulum. But it'll take a long time for them to regain the 140 billion in assets that they have lost. And yeah. just to remind you, the taper tantrum, the taper tantrum, I think the, the outflows were at 72 billion, if I'm not mistaken. It took 104 weeks for that to come back. This wow. is not happening this, it's not happening this year. Okay. Let, let's stick with cheap beta for a second. Mikhail, I, you know, my feeling on ETFs is sort of mixed, right? You had record for muni ETFs flows into them this year, right? They were the bright spot as far as ETF flows on a percentage basis. But the one thing that sort of concerns me is the fact that as more products come online in that space, you're just going to be fighting over the same pile of bonds, right? It's really hard to differentiate yourself in, in sort of like that cheap beta passive approach. What is your feeling on that? So in terms of like threefold, like first of all, I think Muni, the mini market is sort of like in many ways is lagging what's happening in other markets. You see what's happening in the corporate market, how ETFs completely dominate and cannot be ignored. And for us, it's just a matter of time when ETFs become an even bigger force uh, than before. So I think that's number one. Number two, I would say a lot of people were saying like, well, how come we actually had like, what is that, 20 something billion in flows of ETFs this year yeah. compared like with like 100, like 50 billion outflows out of like funds, give or take. So I think, you know, one of the big reasons behind it is sort of like the trade that investors were doing when they're harvesting losses and effectively taking money out of like bonds and, and funds and putting them uh, into ETFs, which was the possibility of like sort of reversing this trade over a period of time. So I think that's some truth to it. But in terms of specifically like do we have, will the market become extremely fragmented just because we'll have like a ton of ETFs, I think it's probably will be the same thing as we see in the corporate space when you have like a handful of very large ETFs and they are garnering most of the assets and unless you have a different strategy you 
probably it's hard for you to like sort of like gain um, enough assets to be relevant enough. So the like, sort of the rich will get richer, and the biggest ETFs will become uh, even bigger and more influential. Um, at least that's that's a, that's a possibility. But we'll continue to see other products um, and other ETFs and other types of strategies being developed. So I think nothing can stop the progress here, and uh, um, you know the pro progress here. And I think that's just one of those things that will happen to our space. I mean, is part of that progress sort of the further compression of fees? We saw Schwab come out this year. Their passive product, you know, they definitely threw a shot across the bow at Vanguard, you know, going like a basis point cheaper on fees. Do you see another competitor coming in going even cheaper or Vanguard just trying to price match and improve? I mean, it's hard for me to say, like, exactly in terms of, like, pricing, uh, but I'd say that definitely, they, you know, the more ETFs you have, the more assets that they, they gain, there's definitely some pressure on pricing, and it happens not just in the muni space, it happens, like, all across, like, all fixed income assets, so the trend is definitely there. In terms of specifics, will somebody else will try, like, come and try to undercut other players? I mean, it's hard for me to say. I mean, it's, uh, it's really much more a political call rather than anything. Let's turn to returns for a second, right? We've had a great almost two months at this point, right? Better than anyone could have expected for the first 10 months of the year. But with the record returns on munis, you know, since November, there's some concern from the market that we're hearing that exempts are pulling forward positive returns from next year already, right? Everyone's always scared. Oh, you're taking January returns away. You know, is that a valid concern, Peter? Uh some degree, uh, clearly, right? So bond prices are going to uh, are operating off of a higher base than they were in October. So naturally, given the same uh, sort of landing place for interest rates, your performance in 2023, by definition, is going to be less. But the answer on uh, performance really lies in the economy, as uh, you know, folks have, have been talking about, and the behavior of the Fed. Uh, you know, we, we again uh, clearly uh, lesser. Uh, performance from our perspective than uh, initially thought when we wrote our outlook in mid-November. But, uh, you know, that said, we still think that uh, the mantra and performance theme for 2023 should be a flipping of the script from uh, investment practice in 2022 to investment practice in 2023. And that is really beholden to our forecast for open and mutual fund flows and see the first portion of this conversation. You know the economy, Fed, and how um, how how effective the uh, Fed is going to be given the way the economy the economic backdrop plays out, which uh, sort of is the fundamental uh, you know underpinnings of of our performance for a bull steepening of the curve in 2023. So uh, a, you know if uh, the longer portion of the market, AMT bonds. Uh, airports, uh, healthcare, if all of those sectors of the curve that require a larger infrastructure, both in terms of credit and let's say structural analysis of the market have underperformed in 2022, we expect to see them outperform in yeah. 2023. You just and mentioned I'll stop there. No, no, it's good. You just mentioned AMT. And look, we have a limited window, I guess, where, where we know sort of who in that bucket is actually going to be subject to that tax, right? Sunsets in 2025. Do you think that trade sort of goes away after that? What are you guys thinking from a tax standpoint, or, or are you not looking out that far yet? 
there could be some relief, some patch to the AMT, as we have saw b before DCJ implemented the sort of larger fix or at least longer term fix in 2018, implemented in 2018. So uh, having said that, uh, we'd be surprised if, if that uh, were to revert all the way back to uh, the current, current net or um, you know, uh, proportion of capture of yeah. the investor base that we see today. Vikram, uh, tax exempts have never had two consecutive years of negative total returns. Is there any reason to think that 2023 could break that streak if we have a deflationary type recession? Yes, so I, I think say, this hiking cycle is unique. And I, I have pointed to the same metric in the past and tried, tried to give myself confidence that yes, we'll have good numbers this year. But uh, I think Peter alluded to this fact too, that so typically the way the rates market is behaving, we are acting as if the Fed is already on pause. And yeah. historically, if you look at the last four hi hiking cycles, uh, the the peak occurs one to three months before the the, uh, the Fed pauses, and then it rallies 50 basis points. But we have already rallied 75 basis points, 85 basis points in the last six weeks, and the market is is way ahead of the fundamentals. So I am I am worried about a disappointment uh, today yeah. from the Fed, for instance, and. As much as we would like to believe that yes, you know, some sectors will do better versus the others, the truth is that this is a duration play. So the rate market will will dictate returns for the year for munis. And if we start and 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 this is on what your your, your uh, Eric's question earlier that given the rally is actually pulling returns from next year, yes, I I feel that is happening. And you know, the the term for it is break even. That there's no cushion left. Right, yeah. so there's no cushion left. So even the the slightest sell-off, given that things are so rich, even a slight sell-off will, will drive us into negative territory. And could I do I see the possibility that rates will re, will increase by 50 to 100 basis points next year? Absolutely. And if that's the case, then I don't see how we don't see negative returns. So I am uh, I am not that optimistic about positive returns, and our forecast for next year is you know nominally negative returns. You mentioned earlier uh, in, in this call that you know investors got burned with low coupon structures, right? The market really found out what convexity means to our market in a hard way. You know, it's my understanding that a lot of the ETFs are jumping into low coupon bonds right now to sort of drive up their SEC yields. Is there any concern, given the fact that you were sort of on the mindset that rates could rise again, that they almost want to double dip on the pain front? I mean, that just it seems like they didn't learn much of a lesson if they're willing to sort of jump back in like that. Well, so see, the ETF flow is, is driven by investor flow. So investors are, are so they're selling open-end funds and, and they're taking exposure in ETFs. And there are multiple reasons for that. One is tax loss harvesting, which is happening. Then there is the trading edge too, that, you know, there's the ongoing cost focus, which, I mean, as far as funds are concerned, doesn't matter so much in the muni world, but the institutional ETFs offer the same kind of, uh, well, the large ETFs offer the same kind of spreads as institutionals uh, yep. would be offered. And then in general, smaller ETFs, you know, it's, it's cheaper to buy the smaller ETF than trading in the odd lot markets. And then also there are model trade ones. So what I'm trying to say is, Eric, that so ETF AUM has increased dramatically because like Mikhail pointed to uh, point to the fact that there's a structural shift, right? So I, I don't think there is any lesson to be learned there. It's just that they're, they're gathering assets while they can. 
right? And and, and gathering, I guess, what assets are available more more to that point, right? Correct. So so they are liquid. They have become liquidity providers. So if the funds yeah. are selling selling fours because they they have been burned by fours, then yeah. they are buying fours. If if they're selling fives, they would have bought five. They yeah. would have bought fives, and that's why. So when you look at the, I think Peter alluded to this number. So the fund flow number for uh, open end funds is negative one forty one, right? Mm -hmm. And the AUM change is negative two sixteen. Now, for ETFs, the fund flow number is plus 25 billion, and yeah. the AUM change is plus 20. So what does that tell you? That they haven't really been impacted by performance as much. No. Right? So, yeah, so they're gathering, they're gathering the assets that they can. It's, yeah. I don't think there's a lesson to be learned there. Okay. Mikhail, uh, let, let's just talk about the Muni curve for a second, because there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. I want to get your take on it. I think a lot of people have been in this market. Their understanding has always been that the Muni curve could never invert due to the exemption, whether right or wrong, that's sort of their long-held belief. Yet here we are, uh, the curve's now inverted between three months and 11 years-ish. Do you feel this is gonna be a short-lived phenomenon? You know, what's your take on it? Sure. And one thing I just wanted to, to to mention about the previous question, actually we did have a period when we had two negative years in a row. It was 1980, 1981. So hopefully we're not going to have repeat next year. Hopefully Vikram is wrong. So don't wish for anybody, but you know, we don't want two, two years of negative returns, to be honest. So uh, back to your question, I think, uh, first of all, I completely agree that Muni curve does not typically invert. So what we have right now, it's a technical um, aberration. It's related to the sort of like the VRDN pressures that we have um, at the end of um, uh, the year. The VRDNs were very rich, and now we actually see that inventory became like extremely, extremely heavy. And I think the next couple of weeks will be quite exciting for, um, you know, exciting in quotation um, marks for, for uh, short-term investors. So SIFMA will likely adjust to, like, to close to like 4% uh, tomorrow. And in general, I mean, that's what really the pressure that we have uh, on the front end. I mean, that's the main reason. So like all the way up to like one year. So that's why the curve will remain inverted most likely until these pressures will um, will dissipate, which we'll think will probably will happen, um, you know, in January when we have uh, the coupon um, uh, and um, uh, redemptions and coupon reinvestments. Um, so we probably it will go away. The bigger question, not related specifically to what you say, and one of the risks that sort of we outlined. So, what will actually happen to tubs if the curve is inverted? And I'm, when I'm talking about inverted, I'm talking about the VRDN curve or the you're, like the SIFMA you're curve. You're reading my mind. I was going to get to that. I'm excited for this now. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so see, I'm a mind reader on top yes. of it. So what do you think about rates? Let me guess. <laughs> so uh, so um, tubs are not as big of a pleasure as they used to be. We might, we, yeah. The market is much smaller and delivered. However, the big risk to the market, if you actually have the SIFMA, the front end, staying above the loan end, if the loan end is anchored because of all demand, and I'm talking about loan end all the way, sort of like, you know, 15 to like, sort of like 30-year part of the curve, and the front end this pressure then effectively you not only you don't even have to have an inversion because there's some costs associated with tubs if this rates are within 50 basis points economically tubs cannot really function so in essence what you have right now and we had it in 2020 and before that in 08 and 2006 especially when you had this inversion you actually have tub unwinds 
and we really need to see if if, if this sort of the super pressures dissipate as we expect in in January, then clearly we're back to normal. Or if the loan end will will um, sell off and the curve will steepen that way, so we're back to normal. But if it's not, I mean, realistically, a lot of the stops will have to be un un unwound, and this definitely will. You know, when we're talking about low supply, I mean, that's when you get additional supply from that. So at least that's something to be um, to be cognizant of. Peter, let's uh, pivot to credit. What are the areas of public finance you see uh, most at risk for a recession? So my view on credit is sort of twofold. One, uh, from a jumping off point, we're uh, in, in exceedingly good shape. So if you look at year-to-date tax receipts, they're 17% above uh, where they were at this time last year. Rainy day funds are at record levels. Contributions to uh, pension funds are also at record levels. So we see, uh, you know, sort of a, a strong jumping off point. I mean, that said, uh, obviously in a recessionary period, your concern is that revenues will go down. Your concern is that uh, clearly capital markets underperformed in 2022. That's going to impact pension funds. You also have COLA issues with uh, pension funds as well. So um, you, you would expect a deteriorating uh, credit environment. Now, all that said, you and I well know historic default rate for all municipal bonds is exceedingly low, right? Uh, 0.02% uh, 0 for the whole of munis, including IG and non-IG. And in the high yield space, we have about a 6% uh, historic default rate, which compares very well to the 20% in uh, the corporate space for sub-IG debt. Yeah. So uh, my concern about credit is really, uh, related to, uh, you know, I, I don't have a significant amount of catastrophic returns, given our call for a relative mild recession. Yeah. Uh, but my, my concern is that uh, you'll see some of the more suspect areas of the market. So call it maybe smaller uh, private institutions in uh, the higher ed space. Uh, again, sort of smaller, uh, it, smaller entities within the healthcare space, uh, express lanes, uh, you know, those sort of, uh, those sort of deals. Uh, some project finance deals are done in areas where uh, potentially the socioeconomic backdrop is uh, is below par and uh, diminishing with the economic downturn. That you could see some deterioration in credit, uh, you know, next year again on the fringes. A lot of the theme we hear talked about in the muni market is return to normal, whatever that means at this point, right? So, Vikram, do you think buyers of higher education and public transit have to come to grips that this may be the new normal or we're never getting back to 2019 um, and sort of wrap their minds around the fact that volumes may be different and revenue streams may be stressed? Well, I, I guess that's a fair point. But see, when you say return to normal, I mean, when I look at higher education, and I look at toll roads, and I look at mass transit, yeah. returns have been very similar. So it's yeah. not like one has done very badly versus the other. So, I mean, as we approach a recession, again, there's no guarantee of that, right? I mean, yeah. we have got a recession caused wrong in the past. But as we approach a recession, I mean, I worry about the hybrid sectors like, let's say, airports or, or toll roads or, or CCRCs and like Peter mentioned, healthcare, but uh, higher education for sure. Uh, mass transit, I mean, mass transit, as you know, MTA accounts for a very large portion of that mass transit and, and that is a credit which is which has some structural imbalances. So, uh, 
the long answer to your question is that uh, well I, I don't know what what you mean by return to normal and grips uh, you know coming to grips with reality because I think they have not really underperformed the market they have not performed they have been in sync with the market and so we will be driven uh, performance in these sectors too will be driven by what happens in the rate market and whether or not we'll face a recession next year yeah yeah. Mikhail, going down in credit, are the monsters under the bed in high yield still in senior living and project finance? Yeah, that those two sectors clearly in high yield will worry the most, especially CCRC, and that's where actually we had the most defaults. Um, you know, and maybe like some lower end, um, low end, higher end. But yeah, I mean that's uh, that the sectors that that basically suffered um, the most during the pandemic, and did that that happened despite all the all the help that um, they were able to get from the federal government. Specifically, the CCRC sector is um, affected by the correcting housing market, right? So everybody knows that housing is correcting the prices of housing um, um, uh, for shelter is correcting um, due to higher um, high rates, um, and that typically, like, that's how, like, investors, uh, the, the, the um, sort of uh, participants, they typically sell their their shelter to, like, pay, pay the fees or pay the entrance fees, and that thing that's pretty much direct correlation there. So those two sectors and the high yield probably, you know, um, we're concerned the most. Um, you know, there's some other sector project, as, as you mentioned, you know, like for projects really have to be, have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but overall, I would say uh, we expect clearly some more problems, especially if we're in a recession, especially if it's in a deeper recession than, than we project. Clearly, we're going to see more defaults. But if we projected like 1% uh, default rate last year, uh, we just marginally increase it for next year to 2%. So it's nothing that we're going to see more likely see in, say, corporate high yield, which will probably see like four, five, uh, six type of percent of returns. That's, uh, you know, the recent projections. All right. I know we're running short on time, so we're going to keep it to like two more rounds of questions. Let's go around the horn and just do what keeps you up at night or what's the biggest worry you guys have for 2023. And Mikhail, let's stay with you and just like, let's kick that off. I think at the end of the day, it's rates. I mean, the, the, regardless how we get there, is it going to be like soft landing on rates will go high and stay high, uh, or is it going to be inflation and the recession? And inflation is, is you know, it's very hard to control and the Fed being like more aggressive. But, you know, as, as I said before, I really hope Vikram is, is wrong, but this rally that we experienced in the last two months is really, nobody really needed this rally. We cannot save this year and uh, cannot, you know, it really takes away from, from next year. So if rates stay high and move higher, we might have actually negative returns, which is not our base case, but it's definitely a risk scenario. Vikram. I have the same worry, and and typically Michael and I don't see eye to eye, as you can make out. But it's <laughs> it's it, it, it's the same worry. Uh, I am skeptical that so inflation is still running. Uh, it's not white hot, but it's red hot, seven percent. So the conventional belief is that the Fed will hike fifty basis points now, and then it'll be whatever twenty five, two twenty fives, and maybe pause for a bit and I don't see how a 25 base point a 50 base point hike that that's very small distinction will actually impact in inflation meaningfully and that means that they could just keep charging ahead with rate hikes and if that's the case rates will continue to sell off and and that's my biggest worry that does keep me up at night and that that did impact uh, not only my calls but also my equity portfolio and I have the same worries uh, for next year. Peter. 
Uh, yeah, clearly we're all on the same page. So, uh, you know, risk that the economy is weaker, the Fed reacts more uh, aggressively because inflation is stubborn. So you get into this sort of stagflation environment or and or uh, rates on the long end uh, increase uh, far greater than uh, we expected. And this is all sort of related directly to open end mutual fund outflows, right? Uh, and if we do see sort of a reigniting of this outflow cycle, it could be very, very difficult or the municipal fund community, and, and specifically some of the more idiosyncratic uh, latent funds in our space. And uh, you see that as sort of a snowball rolling downhill, right? Yeah. Where uh, lower prices beget more outflows, more outflows beget lower prices. So that's definitely uh, a concern. And then finally, you know, with uh, the Fed uh, clearly at this point, at least coming down on uh, their view that uh, they will sacrifice the employment that will sacrifice the economy to stave off inflation uh, that, um, again, has a whole host of credit issues for the municipal bond market. All right. I mean, as some of you may or may not know, we have an anonymous muni chat we run through Bloomberg Intelligence, and they're always good about throwing in questions they want to ask you guys. So I'll kick off. We'll stay with Peter. Peter, they want to know your favorite lift in the gym, deadlift or bench? <laughs> Uh, um, I like lifting the 12 ounce, um, you know, 12 ounces to my lips. How's that? Okay. All right. That's fair. That's a non-answer answer. We'll stick with that. Vikram, uh, the chat was curious where you come up with the dad jokes for your calls. Well, I'm a dad myself. So I, I'm this uh, suburban middle-aged patriarch. So, you know, so <laughs> that's, that's how I get the dad jokes. So they're all based on my life. <laughs> all right. Excellent. And lastly, Mikhail, favorite candy store in Times Square? The candy store. What? What? What's the question? Times Square candy store. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't come up with the question. It was submitted. I have. I have no idea what the question is. I can. I can refer to the previous question though. Like you know, you asked me a question and answer a different one. So when you said like the dead jokes about Vikram, I thought you mentioned bad jokes, and Vikram is really full of bad jokes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, hang on. You, you said. You said. You said dad jokes, right? Did you say bad? I did jokes? say. They, they, yes. It was, the question was dad jokes. I feel like that is what your jokes. Have been referred to yes. Yes, yes correct so it's bad jokes mostly okay all right we can leave <laughs> it at that so another non-answer answer all right i want to thank peter vikram mikhail for joining us today karen for for joining our call today as well and listen we're going to talk uh next year at this time and see what we got right and what we got wrong and then we'll look uh, forward to 2024 thanks everyone <laughs>